0: Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville. Local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering gourmet pizzas, hot submarine sandwiches, and salads with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com. 332-4495 for delivery.
1: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of The Herald Times, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk about uh, the issues um, surrounding digesting the media. So this is going to be an interesting hour as we uh, figure out how to digest the media today. Uh, We have three guests in the studio. I'm not going to do them probably proper justice because they all have a lot of accomplishments that I could mention. I will uh, tell you a little bit about each one of them. Jeff McCall is here. Jeff is Uh, at DePauw University where he's a professor of communication. Uh, I want to mention the name of his book, Viewer Discretion Advised, Taking Control of Mass Media Influences. Also Eric Busey is here. Uh, Eric is an associate professor of telecommunications and an adjunct associate professor in the Department of Political Science and the School of Informatics at IU. He's uh, been co-author of a book with the title Image, Bite, Politics, News and the Visual Framing of Elections. (laughs) And Ed Hurt is here. Ed is a, prof- is a professor of psychology at Indiana University. He has a lot of areas of interest. The one When I first got to know Ed, I am fascinated by his study on um, um, burging. I believe we would call it, Basking in Reflected Glory. It's about how fans react when their teams are doing well in a particular sport. I've always been fascinated by that. So, Ed, (laughs) welcome to you, too. All right. Thanks for all being here today. If you have questions or comments out there, you can phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also join the discussion at our website, wfiu.org slash noonedition. And we're also on Twitter. Follow us at noonedition. Well, this is a, a... Very um, interesting, fascinating topic to me being in the old media. Um, But I want to start out I guess with – if we're talking about how you digest the topic of digesting media and digesting news, I would say news. How do do we describe – how do we define – what news is or what media is today in this sort of changing environment. So, Jeff, you want to start with that?
2: Well, I I like to try to define news kind of to the uh, standard criteria that the old journalists have always run with, and that would be high impact, how many people are affected, timeliness, proximity, conflict, the prominence of the people involved in the news, and there's also that human interest component as well. What I'm disturbed about, though, I think is that um, particularly television as a primary surrogate. Of news dissemination. Now, television, I think, has tried to redefine those standards Mm -hmm. uh, and that we end up a lot of times covering news stories that don't necessarily have a lot of high impact, uh, particularly cop shop type news, traffic accidents, you know, convenience store holdups and that sort of thing. Uh, And I also think there's an overemphasis perhaps on the prominence of the people involved from time to time, particularly in the celebrity world. So I think one of the difficulties we have uh, in our news agenda in this day and age is the fact that uh, the news media helps determine for the public what the public should think is important, and i don 't know necessarily that the public 's agenda is the same as the news medias in this day and age, but that 's what they 're left to have to absorb
0: i 've got a lot of issues about this issue, and one of the one of my Big pet peeves right now is when Katie Couric comes on in the morning wearing the outfit. This, you know, it's obviously pre taped. She's got the outfit. She did the news in the night before and tells us what's going to be on the news tonight. Well, by definition, to me, that's not news. Drives me crazy.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. Now, here's a preview
0: of what's going to be on the news. Well, you can't do that.
1: (laughs) Right. They're they're, they're adding context, right? Eric. I think to me, it's.
3: it's a, a distinction between news and news analysis and so you can predict what your analysis is going to be on, on stories that are ongoing or human interest stories or stories that um, you know, haven't you – know, don't have this absolute timely and you know, approximate value. But uh, unfortunately, I think what's in the environment, we're focusing way more on analysis and opinion than we are on what used to be understood as news. In fact, now we have to make a distinction between Hard news and soft news. Right. And, and we do that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And they've got they've got thirty minutes. You know. Mm-hmm. And so I'd really like to know the news. The last twenty four <laughs> hours since news. the last time we chatted. Tell me what happened. I don't want to have something that some producer has been working on for six months. You know, that's why God made Oprah. So I don't know. <laughs> that's just me.
4: Ed, yeah. <laughs> I mean as a psychologist, one of the things that's always fascinated me is just how much you know other people shape what we think is important. And certainly when we digest any kind of news media, whether it's from TV, whether it's from newspapers, whether it's from online sources that people send to us through various means it- – you know, that defines for us what we think are important. So if we decide and some producer decides that this is something we want to invest attention in and we hear a lot about it, well, then that becomes something very important and something we're concerned about, whether it's swine flu, whether it's, you know, some particular, uh, you know, concern in the media with uh, you know, particular issues or, you know, particular part of the world or in our country or whatever. I mean it really shapes for us what we think is, is newsworthy, is important and something we should be focusing our attention on.
1: Well, one thing that fascinates me about this whole topic and you guys have been great in framing this. um, Jeff, you were talking about how news media still sets an agenda for news and and tells people what's news. And in fact, one of the reasons we're doing this program I think is because that's not not happening so much anymore. I mean with – everybody can be a producer it seems these days everybody can can be a disseminator of news however they define news and every and people are having more and more freedom to consume news and information and media however they choose to define that now uh, this is a long sort of uh, preamble to a question i mean what what's the impact on society in terms of uh, not an easy question either. In terms of, of when news media used to set sort of an agenda and say, here are the most important issues facing our community, there was sort of a collective um, vision for what was important. And now everything is just sort of splintered. That's as I see it. So how's that sort of playing out in our society today? Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, it, it does. Um, you have the – an opportunity and a problem and the opportunity is how do you get more people involved in the news and closer to the news and feeling like they have some voice in society. You do that through user-generated content. So mm-hmm. interactive technology has been fantastic that way. The problem is that overemphasizes a particular take on the news which happens to be my opinion or my experience or my little um, you know, daily reality. Which is not the traditional function of news and coordinating and informing, uh, you know, democratic culture. And so, um, from a kind of self governance point of view, we're suffering for lack of information. From a participation point of view, we're benefiting because now anyone who wants to can get involved.
2: Mm-hmm. I like the idea of having public participation and helping set the news agenda, uh, but I think one of the problems is, frankly, that. Uh, even though citizens have a lot to offer, I don't know that necessarily they can generate the kind of audience that's going to uh, provide a lot of impact. So I really think that still we need to rely on the agenda-setting uh, producers and editors in the traditional media to help set a reasonable agenda for us. And my concern is that that agenda uh, too often is not reasonable enough. Uh, and you know, to get back to the, uh, the cop shop type news, uh, if you're watching local television news, you know, traditional, you know, 6 o'clock news or 11 o'clock news, 30 percent of the content of that newscast is going to be, you know, murders, traffic, accidents, shootings, that kind of stuff. And only 2 percent on your average local television newscast will be on the subject of education at any level. Mm -hmm. Now, I think if you went out and asked your average citizen in Indianapolis or Bloomington or Columbus or Seymour or Greencastle or any place— you know, is education important to you, you know, at the college level or at the secondary level or for your preschool? I think they would all say yes, but they're only getting 2% of that uh, in local television news. And I think... Those are harder stories to tell than to just follow, you know, the latest police standoff or something.
1: You know, there's no question about that. And I'll give you just a, a, a little local uh, personal story. We have I, – I guarantee you we have more police news in the Herald Times today than we did two years ago mm-hmm. and a lot of the reason for that is every day, every afternoon at 3 o'clock, I get a readout of what our top red stories on our website was and every day I can expect that it's going to be the top police stories of the day. That's at least the that's how that's how people are consuming news online now whether that translates into the newspaper i have my doubts but we still do more of those stories online and they wind up in the newspaper and it gives if you pick up our paper today it gives a different view of bloomington than you would have gotten two years ago it looks like there's a lot more crime here.
0: well i think that goes to something that another pet peeve i have is kind of fear-based consumption we're we're and in a lot of ways, we're, we're uh, taking in stories that play to our fears. One, uh, you know, another thing that I'm noticing on um, the news is that there's always a health scare every night. There's a fresh health scare. I'm worn out. Um, and and the police stories, the same thing. You know, is my neighborhood still safe? Is there a gang moving into my neighborhood? So that's my one of my concerns about public generated news. Is that I go to non public generated news because in my mind, those folks still have some credibility. And, you know, I think that there's journalistic integrity still for the most part. And so that's what I want. I want somebody to to kind of vet this stuff for me and check it out and then say, OK, this is this is really what happened here. I know, you know, as opposed to, well, my grandmother's father heard about this and he said, you know, I don't want to know that. So anyway, I'm on quite a little soapbox today.
3: I, you, I, 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 if I Eric, just, go uh, ahead. One more sure. thing. There's the interesting confluence here and um, I talk about this in some of my classes. So you have the, the free market system, which is trying to generate advertising dollars and, and maximum audience share. And then you have like human kind of um, natural tendencies or you know information processing tendencies. And so what we've been mentioning fits within one of my schemes as a um, psychological definition of news. And if you present that, it's very hard for people to ignore it because it does have – some immediate relevance yeah. to their lives and so this is why weather you – know, concerns uh-huh. or scares or alerts and health scares and even you know, local crime has a big impact because it's proximate and it could harm you or impact you. The problem is it, you can become obsessed with that and hurt other definitions of news which might for instance – play more towards democratic, mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, higher-minded principles.
0: Right. And that's why I thought your education example was so so excellent. Um, that's exactly right. Would, are we getting the news we want or the news we should get? Mm-hmm.
2: And I agree with your assertion that we really need editorial judgment from editors and producers to help guide that agenda for us. Uh, but unfortunately, I think we're in an era, particularly in television, where it's a producer's medium, where the news agenda is driven by public opinion polling, perhaps, that we're doing surveys like, oh, well, what what news story got the biggest jazz uh, in the news last night? And it might well have been the standoff at the convenience store, but it doesn't necessarily add to our understanding or to our democratic functioning. And, uh, and one thing that concerns me, and I think you know, Ed, as a psychologist, could maybe address this more clearly than I could, but there is evidence out there that high-consumption uh, news viewers for television, people who watch a lot of television news think the world is a meaner place than it actually is, that there is more crime out there than there actually is, uh, and that, that disturbs me to think that the people who are absorbing the most news have perhaps a warped view of reality. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because, you know,
4: as you said, there's a selection bias in terms of what kinds of stories tend to get reported because people want to read them because they have high impact on their, as you said, on Mm -hmm. their daily lives. I mean, the idea that this could, in fact, affect me, whether it's a health thing, whether it's something that, you know, community based, you know, need kind of issue. Um, And so. Once we perceive that, then it's going to shape our view of what reality is. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's our local community or whether it's our world in general, but certainly that kind of stuff is going to impact on what we represent as reality because if we digest that over and over again, that does shape kind of how we view the world around us. And so,
0: to me, it seems kind of like news junk food.
4: <laughs>
0: you know, there's a lot of that. Yeah. You know, I mean, a you know, it's, a, it's appealing. It's satisfying short term. But is it really good for you in the, in the long term? Hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, we're we're having a lively discussion about news (laughs) consumption here today on Noon Edition. If you'd like to join us, please phone us at 855-0811, 877-285-9348. WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is uh, the website where you can add your uh, written comments and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I also want to give um, the identifications of these voices you're hearing, Jeff McCall uh, uh, the uh, uh, professor of communication at DePaul University, Eric Busey who is uh, in telecommunications at Indiana University and Ed Hurt who is in psychology at Indiana University. So um, Jeff, I want to go back to your, your book and your book title, Viewer Discretion Advised, Taking Control of Mass Media Influences. Uh, is that directed toward individuals taking control of the influences or some greater uh, entity?
2: Well, it is involved in getting the individuals to take more control of their own media consumption. Uh, The whole notion of media literacy, I think, is underplayed in our educational system, you know, K through college, frankly, that, you know, basically every student who goes to the educational system learns about, you know, literature and how to appreciate poetry and that sort of thing. But very little formal education is ever done uh, uh, about how to absorb or consume the mass media. Now, I don't want to overstate this because, you know, I know there there is a law of diminishing returns here, but I do encourage people who are concerned about media content to express their concerns to the producers, to the editors. Um, That's not to say that they're going to change their behavior right away, but it is interesting that sometimes the right message, getting to an editor or a news director or something like that, can affect how they, you know, will cover a particular story. I have a friend who's an executive at a – uh, news organization in Chicago. And he said one time, one targeted letter about an issue they'd been covering came in, and it got the attention of the people in, uh, in the you know, the production room and said, let's, let's change. Let's do this. So sometimes just one letter, one phone call or email can make a difference. And the, the, my point is, as media consumers, as news consumers, we should not just sit back and let the media wash over us. We need to be active receivers. Uh, and part of that gets into You know, having citizens being more involved in helping set the agenda, as we talked about a little earlier. But part of that is just letting advertisers, editors, producers know what you like, what you don't like, Uh, even on simple things like this week. There's been a lot of heat over David Letterman's, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. attempt at humor uh, over the Palin family. I think people who are upset get the word to not necessarily to go to CBS. I I don't imagine the CBS president Les Moonves is going to respond. But if you let the general manager at Channel 8 know or uh, uh, Channel 10 and Terre Haute know, they're the ones who are going to get that feedback up the chain.
1: Might I add that you don't have to yell at your editor. No, no. This, this should all be done in a civil way. I get a lot of feedback. But it's... We want a lot of civil interaction. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. So um, in, in terms of, of what you guys are seeing, and this, this always interests me these days too because when you talk about um, – Appreciation or savvy about consuming media, um, I'm struck by what students are, where students are getting their information mm-hmm. today, and what sources they're actually quoting from. I know I, I remember back in the day, I'd get letters to the editor that would say, or, or quote as a source the internet," you know, which <laughs> obviously is pretty ridiculous. But you know, what are you finding about the uh, the savviness of young people today, Ed? Well, certainly, Wikipedia is the <laughs> predominant source for most people's papers
4: and, and things like that in terms of getting information. So, you know, the question of you know, is, well, who who uh, polices that and how accurate is that information, since so many people go, as you said, directly to the internet for definitions for you know any kind of information about any to- topic you give them. Um, you know, I think a lot of the students that I see now, I mean, have stories forwarded to them by their peers, too. I mean, one of the mm-hmm. things with Facebook kinds of things is that people are always kind of pushing stories of and video of different kinds of things that are happening in, in the world around them to their friends. And so that's very much shaping kind of their ideas of what's happening. So if somebody has a particular view and they find, you know, a, a thing that's happening on David Letterman particularly offensive, they send it out to their friends. And so then people are concerned about this and this becomes something that they, you know, kind of pass along. And it very much shapes kind of how they how they think about things and what what kinds of things are of concerns with them and you know I mean among students certainly that you know that communication with your peers is certainly one of the most powerful ways that people i think think
3: about a lot of the issues in their lives yeah hmm. yeah i mean internet's far and away <clears throat> the top source of information followed a little bit by campus newspapers well, at least while they 're um, enrolled in classes and then Uh, Television um, also is still at play and I do surveys of my students to find out where they get their uh, information from and so local television is still hanging in there and of course they love individual shows like The Daily Show or The Colbert Report Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's actually a a fairly broad news or at least information diet uh, because they're spending so many hours with media a day and and the numbers at least for college students on a wired campus like IU, are up to six to ten hours a day with with media.
1: Well, let's pursue that a little bit with The Daily Show and The Colbert Report. I mean because those have in some ways with a certain generation, those have supplanted Katie Couric and other people on the evening news. What effect is that having on our consumption of news?
3: I think it's good. That it interests them in what's going on. They um, you know, hear some of the most important stories, not all of them, but it may it turns them into news consumers and they don't really um think of it as their civic obligation or duty there's no you know heaviness to it and it kind of fits with their sensibility um and so i think it's you know more good than bad
0: well i think another uh, I actually agree with you, uh, especially for a specific age group. But I also think that it does a good job of teaching them to be news skeptics because they do you know, make fun of some of the network broadcasts that, in fact, deserve to be made fun of. Um, and so I think that, that it actually trains a critical eye, which is a good, a good thing.
2: Yeah, the, the only thing I would add to that is I, I don't think uh, programs like The Daily Show uh, should be sufficient. I would like to think that that's part of a broader menu of news consumption uh, by young adults. And in in many cases, uh, it is not part of a broader menu that sometimes I think young adults will watch a program like the Colbert Report and think, oh, I've been informed for today and let it go with that. And there's also some evidence that uh, learning happens from late night comedy programs uh, like Conan O'Brien and Letterman and whatnot. And I think if If students are watching that and it appeals their sensibilities, I agree with Eric that there's no problem with that. Maybe get some news items on their agenda. But I think that needs to be supplemented with a newspaper or if they're on the Internet to go to some hard news sites and to not let that stand alone.
0: I think, you know, that's probably just a stop and a continuum, though, and that's that's why I do look at it as almost kind of a training ground because then – a lot of people will, as as you mature, I mean, you tend to use that more as a, a supplement. I can I can just see it as a stop on a continuum.
3: Though. One of the kind of I don't know amazing things for me as a kind of old school print reporter is just to ask you know about newspaper use and relevance. And unfortunately, in my classes, I don't see a whole lot of that outside of the campus paper. And then I ask them, well, what are the three major networks? And they answer without skipping a beat: well, CNN, Fox, and MSNBC.
0: Oh, my gosh. Wow.
3: And you have to actually Mm -hmm. tell them that the audience share on a nightly basis is, you know, much, much larger for still the traditional networks. And they've, for the most part, never watched an evening newscast. Mm -hmm. That is amazing to me. It's it's the reality. Wow.
1: All right. We're, uh, we've hit the halftime break of our program today. It's going very fast as we talk about the consumption of news. Uh, if you'd like to join our guests, Jeff McCall, uh, Eric Busey, and Edward Hurt in the second half of the program, phone us at 855 811 877 or you can go to our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. We'll be right back.
5: You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, Smithville Telephone Information at smithville.net, and from Mother Bear's Pizza at motherbearspizza.com. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game musical mini-quiz, as well as movie, play, and opera reviews. Find out more by going to our website, WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Listen at 8.33 a.m. and 5.45 p.m. every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to catch that day's feature. If you miss one, that's okay. They're archived on our website, wfiu.org. And the best features from each week can be heard Saturday mornings at 7.45.
1: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from The Herald Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael and our three guests today, Jeff McCall, a professor of communications at DePaul University, Eric Busey, associate professor of telecommunications and adjunct associate professor in the Department of Political Science and the School of Informatics at IU, and Ed Hurt, who's the, a professor of psychology at Indiana University. If you want to join us on the program, please phone us at 855 855- 0811 locally, or if you're in Green Castle or Columbus or Terre Haute or any of those communities, 877-285-9348. And you can find us on the web to send email, wfiu.org slash noon edition. And we do have a phone call, so let's go right to the phones. And Valerie.
6: Um, yeah, um, you've touched on so many issues, I hardly know where to begin. But first of all, I just want to say both my parents were journalists, and my father was a professor of journalism here at IU, and perhaps that's why I have some of the opinions I do about the role of journalism. And, you know, I'm 60 years old now, and I've seen this change, and it's really refreshing to hear you all, you know, touching on some of these basic points that I think have kind of been lost in our uh, current society. But I guess the the point I want to make is that, uh, well, one major point is that you briefly mentioned that you know, news consumption, in my opinion, and I think in your opinion, really is a duty of of a citizen in a democracy. And I also see the role of the media as, as one of a duty to inform the public accurately. And, uh, you know, what comes to mind, I guess, is back to, the, you know, the difference in how I recall the role of the media during the Vietnam War and then what we experienced during the the Bush administration and the Iraq war, you know, I I certainly didn't feel that we were getting any sort of accurate, unbiased reporting of the Iraq uh, invasion. But um, I guess in terms of of educating the young people, you know, to to really make clear that to get a a broad consumption of news um, is the duty of every citizen in the democracy. And I think that the sad thing is that from both sides today that, that uh, many consumers look at news more as entertainment rather than information. And unfortunately, uh, much of the mass media sees it as, you know, what will sell rather than what is our duty to inform. And I guess if I have a question, it would kind of be, you know, at, at this stage, to what point do you think, and this certainly, I think, has changed since we have a new president, but... I certainly felt during the Bush administration that much of the mass media was just an arm of whoever was in power in Washington. And I guess to what extent do you think that is true and to what extent do you think that is hopefully going to change, um, you know, compared to what we were experienced to for the last eight years
1: Okay, and, Valerie.
6: Uh, I guess I've kind of thrown out a lot of issues here, but I'll I'll get off here oh. <laughs> and
1: listen to you. We'll get uh, some reaction, I'm sure. Valerie,
0: okay. I'm going to scoot over and make room on my soapbox for you.
1: <laughs> Who wants to react first? Oh, I guess I could uh yeah, take Eric
3: go ahead. part of that. And um you know, I I I do think we've witnessed in recent years what you might call uh performance issues uh with the press and also political intimidation. Um uh, ever since the war on terror and um, 9-11 has happened um, and it really goes to kind of some of the most foundational issues about what the role of a uh, free press is in a free society and a weak press um, in my mind equals uh, a weak democracy. And I think we've seen some pushback. Um, it was a little delayed and um, mm-hmm. long in coming but uh, particularly the New York Times and Washington Post and some of the networks have been – um, covering stuff um, a little more aggressively, and I just hope next time there's a national crisis or um, you know concerns about security that the press still feels free and that they have their duty and obligation to kind of um, be tough on the government.
4: Anybody else? Yeah, I think one of the things that is a challenge for us and I think as educators we all have this kind of thing is is for people to you know you talked about people being skeptical of the media and that that was something that you thought some of these reports are are encouraging people to do is that a lot of times we just accept information and and don't really you know think about the source and the fact that sometimes these sources are in fact have agendas have some know, filtration system of certain issues that they're trying to avoid or that they're very much motivated by entertainment value and ratings as opposed to, you know, hardline kind of news. And if we're not sensitive to that, we may sort of not be aware of the fact that we are getting a filtered view of things. And so if if we have that skepticism of it and, as you said, sort of encourages us to look at other sources and to take a broader array of things and not just accept one view and one source as the be-all, end-all of the story, then, you know, it's a Good thing, in the sense that we may get things from multiple sources and be able to make our own decision about it. But if we just simply just accept accept it as as, as gospel from any single source, mm-hmm. then we run the danger of of basically, you know, giving those people the the run of what I think is is the world around me.
0: Right. That's why that that skepticism is so important. If you're going to get Absolutely. get part of your information from unknown sources on the internet, then. You better have a critical eye with you or you're going to really go down, you know, accept the wrong information.
1: Okay, I I work in the the newspaper trenches and I have to point out the great big elephant in the room that we haven't noted yet today. And that is that to cover the news in the way that the news should be covered in 2009 takes money. Mm -hmm. It takes financial resources beyond what most newspapers, most TV stations, most radio stations are able – to put into them today because the revenue models for newspapers, uh, radio stations, TV stations isn't working the way it used to before the internet and before – well, the economy went to hell in a handbasket. But – so is there – do you three see some new model that's not based on um, a um, a, – Ad revenue? Yeah, an advertising revenue model or just a for-profit model? that we need to be looking at if we're going to cover news and information in the way that it needs to be covered as we move forward.
0: That's a great question.
2: Well, that, that <laughs> nobody's f- figured out that model yet, obviously, because uh, the ad revenue has been declining in the traditional media for e- even before the recession kicked in, uh, and nobody's really addressed that yet. Uh, but you raise a, a great point, Bob, and that is to do the kind of reporting that needs to be done does take resources, does take you know, a bottom line and, uh, and as Eric said, you know, a, a weak press translates into a weak democracy. And as a nation, we cannot afford <laughs> to have uh, our strong newspaper system, our uh, television news operations deteriorate or to go bargain basement in the way they cover things. And uh, unfortunately, we've seen a lot of reporters getting laid off around the country in the electronic and the print side. And th- that's going to cost us at some point. Um, I agree with what the caller said earlier that news is a conversation of democracy. We need to have uh, an effective news system out there for our democracy to function and uh, the model is going to have to change and I think there was a sense at one point that we would end up with like citizen journalists kind of filling the void. Uh, Some research done out of the University of Missouri in the last year seems to suggest that, that in communities where citizen journalists have been trying to set up websites and whatnot, that it is not filling the void. That, in fact, a lot of citizen journalism websites are basically just linking to the traditional media at the TV stations or newspapers in their communities and that there's not a lot of original reporting getting done. And that, that's a real danger, as you indicated, Bob. Mm-hmm.
3: I would I would uh, throw in a role for education here. And, and we need it in a couple of ways. Um, there's a new role for, for instance, journalism schools in teaching courses on media literacy and news consumption and why it's important. So, I mean, if if I was running the campus or... Uh, the School of Journalism, I would probably want a media literacy course uh, required. But then we've got I think a an education of the industry or of media owners, which is not to expect unreasonable profits. And so what happened particularly in the newspaper business but in broadcasting as well is that it became standard to expect 15, 20, 25 percent returns every single year. And so you could have profits um, – I think the LA Times at one point had revenue of a billion dollars. In profits of $200 million for one year and the uh, owners back at the Tribune Company, this is when they still owned it. I'm not sure if they do anymore, uh, expected um, even uh, greater uh, returns for the following year so they had to cut back the new staff on profits of $200 million. So I think there's an education that has to happen among media owners and people involved in the uh, economics of it. That we really shouldn't have any more expectations than a normal business, and shouldn't view it as a cash cow. And going back to my days in journalism school, in the uh, '80s, that was an operative phrase then, and it's a, you know kind of got, <laughs> pardon the pun, milked uh, to an extreme. <laughs> and we need to get away from that thinking about the press.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I, I know that there have been you know, discussions of. Uh, not-for-profit news organizations. Of course, NPR runs the best not-for-profit news mm-hmm. organization anywhere, but I'm not sure that model can be replicated yeah, I just across crossed the board. Yeah, and you know? I just don't know that it can be. So anyway, it's just more food for thought. All right, our phone number is 855-0811-877-285-9348. You can also uh, send us a question, Noon edition, or you can follow us at Noon Edition. So you mentioned um, journalism, education and the need to educate young people about news consumption. Uh, are there other other forms of education? Um, I mean at what level do we start start these discussions I guess? Is this something you think should be in the –
3: Oh I Great think schools. early, early <laughs> and often I I think for me journalism is the new English composition or just a course that's so fundamental it should be required across the curriculum and mm-hmm. it w- it does a number of things of course I'm speaking from experience here but um it um you know kind of focuses you to to first of all understand what it means to be an effective public communicator and so you have to have a discipline of presentation and get to the point and have structure and organization and yet make it interesting at the same time. And so I think by um, um, letting – giving younger people an opportunity and a a, um, kind of a structure in which to be story writers, they start to appreciate good stories and good um, content when they see it. And so uh, instead of – or in addition to traditional composition type things, they should really learn how to do that.
6: Mm-hmm. Well,
3: because we're entering an era where
2: everybody can be a mass communicator. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right, um, you know, Eric, that uh, starting early and often can help these people become part of the process. They can get their voices heard. Uh, and it might just be even within their own school. Um, because I know there are some middle schools producing television newscasts now. Mm-hmm. That, that's a great outlet for them. And there is evidence in the media literacy literature that uh, children in early primary grades, first and second grades, can understand the role of advertising. They can understand how to you know, analyze a news story. Now, I mean not at the same level as like college students would. But they can at least understand that uh, an advertiser is trying to sell them something or that the newscaster is mm-hmm. trying to help them understand the world better. And so even at primary grades, those Mm -hmm. programs can be effective.
4: Yeah, and I think that especially one of the things we lament so many times at universities is the lack of writing skills of a lot of the students, that they don't have that many opportunities to write papers, and typically they don't have to do revisions of papers in the sense of getting feedback and then being able to mm-hmm. really revise it. Mm-hmm. And this context is actually a great one in terms of a, a realistic kind of thing where they get to talk about stories that are relevant to them, that are you know happening out in the world around them instead of maybe on dry topics that don't have mm-hmm. their interest, and that they can also be and consuming information about, you know, from these different sources as well as ways of expression and uh, ways of improving their own writing and and, uh, ability to communicate in this fashion.
0: I I think another important thing about journalism training is the ethical component and that in your communication with more than, well, with anyone really, you really do have an ethical obligation and that's why I think um, I agree that it would be it's really never too soon to start that kind of process in the schools. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, the other thing I want to mention because as you're talking about the, the – uh, just being aware of what you're watching when you're watching mass media is now all the product placement is starting to work its way into – Network television shows, and I don't mean MSNBC and CNN, <laughs> but and Fox, but um, it, it you know that seems that's sort of changing the landscape too. That if somebody's watching their favorite show and everybody on is drinking Coca Cola, American Idol, everybody's right. drinking Coca Cola, right.
3: That's one of one of the great uh, lessons of journalism is the separation between content and advertising, and it and it may I don't know in some cases be artificial. But when you see these two combine, then you get into problems with what news even is anymore. And it becomes more like a news magazine or, um, you know, a story or I don't know, some drama than um, stuff you really should know. Yeah. What's the difference
2: between news and entertainment? Uh, If you will look at a lot of the uh, local affiliate newscasts, uh, you will see that CBS always has stories on Survivor. The, the CBS affiliates. Oh yeah, you right. will notice yeah. that the ABC affiliates locally will always have stories on Dancing with the Stars, and the Fox News affiliates in Indianapolis and various places all have stories, you know, on American Idol, uh, and, and it's kind of shameless promotion, I guess you could say. But it does make us wonder where is that difference between news and entertainment? Not that people aren't interested in the entertainment industry, but my guess is. That, uh, there's a reason that ABC's not doing stories on Survivor. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, they do stories on uh, Disney. That's
0: right. Yeah. Disney
1: Europe and yeah.
2: ABC. Right. And that there. makes
0: me yeah. really mad as a consumer. Yeah. I really resent it's that. It's
1: exploitation yeah. of the consumers at a certain point. Yeah, another plug for NPR. They do stories on all those things.
3: <laughs> That's no right. <laughs> yeah.
1: They're
3: well, and and that's an interesting finding actually. Is if you if you raise the question of credibility and who do you trust, NPR has been one of the few sources that has been increasing in the past 5 or 10 years mm-hmm. and others haven't.
1: Yep. Yeah. All right, we have a phone call and we have an email. So the phone call is from DJ. DJ yeah.
7: Yeah, I, I'm afraid it's over, guys. Are you going to go into real estate now or what? <laughs> uh, uh, no, you know, it's interesting. The uh, Boston Globe is in trouble. The New York Times is in trouble. And the points you're making about uh, the news blending with entertainment, I mean, the Daily Show just exposes the news, uh, current situation of news the way it is. It used to be newspapers were uh, investigative, but I think you're right, the funding on it, uh has all but dried up, now you have stories on the page about a last lost cat you know I mean worse stuff on like uh, scandal in the uh, sheriff 's department or you know a hospital scandal or something like that there 's very little uh, direct consumer benefit to a lot of the news today, and I just wondered how uh, if you guys think might think that the bloggers are self-correcting. Uh, I think the HT had a story a while ago on the Tea Party thing, yeah. and somebody, a couple of viewers, wrote in and said, "Hey, he yeah. had it wrong." So I think that kind of addresses Mary Catherine's point about, hey, the HT is the – or news in general. I'm not picking on the HT. are uh, gatekeepers, but the bloggers can be gatekeepers, too, in the sense of they're self-correcting, where somebody writes in and says two people showed up to a rally. Another person says, hey, no, I got pictures. A hundred people were there. Mm-hmm. So the bloggers may be uh, the new form of news in the terms that, that, like you say, everybody's a producer, and they could be self-correcting. wonder what your comments are on that as the shift goes from – News, uh, hard print to, to save trees too. Uh, mm-hmm. Hard print to um, uh, internet news.
1: Let, let me respond real quickly since you mentioned the HT. I think um, it is true that if we have anything wrong in our newspaper or online, we get corrected really quickly on the comments. I mean somebody will let us know. We had a, a case yesterday where um, a, one of our person posted a story about the storm the night before, misspelled the word lightning and before she could correct it, 30 seconds later because she saw it said, oh, no, somebody had already commented and you know, kind of told her she was an idiot. So you know, those things are, are definitely, definitely true.
0: It's a tough crowd. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> one,
3: one thing about blogs though is that I, I think they perform a terrific what I would call – Kind of uh, ombuds function. They are the kind of um, corrective uh, that the caller was talking about to uh, inaccuracies in in information, which you know are legion. When you're under a deadline and trying to produce um, you know something that's accurate and interesting, there um, and you only have a few hours to do it, there are going to uh, seep into some um, inaccuracies. On the other hand, do bloggers really um, are they trained in how to produce news, and are they looking at um, what people really should know and I think the answer is no. I think they're um, more driven by their own personal interests and opinion for the most extent or for the most part and um, you know, can serve as a great check and balance on the press because you know, one of the ironies of this profession is that increasingly you need a college degree for it but there is no certification and there is no requirement for ongoing professional training um, and there is no – uh, official news council, so the bloggers provide this great kind of informal function of holding uh, the press accountable but i don 't think they really um, have yet shown that they can produce um, viable news
2: you you hit a good point that the bloggers can provide checks and balances on the traditional media, but I think this is another place where media literacy needs to kick in because people who go to the blogs and the traditional media, I think, all need to be in positions to be able to assess the validity, the content, Mm -hmm. the the caliber of what they're reading. Because I think one thing—well, one of the things I talk about in some of my classes is that um, a media-literate person doesn't treat all opinions as equal. Now That's not to say everybody's not entitled their opinion, Mm -hmm. but every opinion on a blog is not necessarily as worthy that it deserves attention as some other blogs or commentators or editorial writers or whatever, and that's where I think we need— a media literate society that can help weigh and balance which are the ones that are supported, you know, with uh, facts, which opinions are, you know, coming out of left field that can't be supported uh, and that sort of thing. There's another danger
4: point. here though that you know, when you talk about corrections and printing corrections, I mean, one is, that are people even aware of them? Do they, do they just get the initial story and even pay attention and follow through with getting all the later corrections? But in psychology, one of the things we find is that a lot of times, I mean, once, once a connection has been made between, let's say, a person and an allegation, you know the correction happens, but it's too late. That association mm-hmm. lingers, even if you find later on that it's been discounted. So I mean, it's it's one of those kind of things where there really is an obligation. You want to get it right the first time because if if you don't, you know. Well, that's I, the
0: whole movie you know, was based right. on that. The Michael Keaton movie, The Paper. Remember that? He, yep. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a very important point. Still true. Yeah. So.
1: I also want to mention that he uh, um, DJ referred to the, us being gatekeepers. Well, you know, we really. We really realized several years ago that we could be gatekeepers if we wanted, but there are no fences anymore. So really the, the idea of news, newspapers or traditional media as gatekeepers is something that it just, it just can't happen.
0: Here's an email that came in. Uh, It says, I want to compliment Bob Salzberg. In recent years, the HD has been doing a terrific job of covering local news about various urban planning and economic development issues. It's a great thing. It keeps people informed about things that influence their lives, and it is a kind of local news that we're not going to get anyplace else. But I have one criticism. Often I would like to use the information in the HT on these issues in my undergraduate classes. It is terrific for students to learn about civic engagement in this way, but the search engine on the HT website makes it difficult to track any specific issue. Also, accessing it requires a subscription, which I'm not sure I want to require of my students. Any suggestions?
1: <laughs> um,
0: uh, <laughs> you're, you're on the hot seat. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right, well. uh, my it's suggestion would be to send me a similar email at my workplace, rsaltsburg at heraldt.com.
0: And I will and pass can, along uh, your yeah. contact information to Bob. I mean the point
1: so. – yeah, the point is we, we do have a, a pay website and more and more newspaper. We get, we get two or three calls a week from other news organizations that want to know how we're doing it. And if it's succeeding for us and the fact is in terms of a business model, it is succeeding for us. So we're not
3: yeah, going to go back. That goes back to the, the revenue problems of the mm-hmm. industry, which is you know, once you give somebody something free, then they have
1: the expectation that they're going to be able to have that permanently free. Right, And we've had this model for six years. So a lot of people – used to it. Some people aren't. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not completely clamped down. I
3: mean you can it, get – Absolutely
1: not. You can get the day's news, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, you can get the headlines yeah. mm-hmm. and you can get all the video, all the photographs, all the advertising, all, all, a lot of things. What you can't get is the databases of all your salaries. Uh, you can't get that unless you're a subscriber. You can't get uh, – you can't comment on stories. You can't read the full stories and you can't get our archives. Mm-hmm. You can you still
0: back, yell at your computer. but you go back that's 21
1: years. But you can get a lot of stuff. Right, right.
0: All right. All right. I, I want to ask a, a question that's been bothering me for a long time and you guys are just the people who can help me with this. From 1991 through 1997, I didn't have um, any kind of cable and the only news that I watched was um, – the, back then it was the McNeil-Lair Report. OK. So it was on, on public television. Loved it. Very interesting. That was my source of news, that and NPR. So then in 1997, I got cable. And I turned on the network news for the first time in six years and was horrified by what I saw. I could not believe the change that had taken place in six years. It had gone from what I considered to be hard news to too much for my taste, entertainment news, um, the kind of uh, very you know long-term produced news, quote-unquote. I mean to me they seem more like human interest stories. And um, so my question is – during that time, nine ninety one to ninety seven, do you guys know what happened? I mean, what was going on during that time frame that would have caused which what to me was a very, very obvious shift in approach to news delivery by the networks?
2: Well, the major networks uh, I think are responding to the increasing news cycle that really is 24 hours a day now. And I think that, uh, you know, the major networks, CBS, NBC, and ABC figure that If they come on the air at 6.30 with a network newscast and they're reporting a headline service, that they're probably repeating a lot of stuff that people already know. And I think they've tried to then make it, those programs, more magazine-focused. I'm not sure it's actually worked for them. Uh, Viewership for those major network newscasts continues to drop. And, in fact, uh, earlier this week, Katie Couric's uh, audience on a particular night, I think it was Monday or Tuesday, was only about 5.1 million, which is the lowest in network history. But I think they're trying to respond to the fact that a lot of people are getting their news from other places now and that they're trying to make their newscasts more feature oriented. But I'm
3: not sure it's that healthy for them frankly.
2: That's
0: encouraging. Go ahead.
3: Well, the perfusion of sources, particularly that time period, that's the rise of the World Wide Web. You've got um, you know the exploding, expanding um, digital cable universe, satellite television started to come into play. Um, just a growing number of um, new formats, venues, um, you know, things like the Daily Show started, I think, somewhere in the in the mid nineties, and it did put a lot of competitive pressure on traditional um, news outlets. And you know, here going back to profit expectations, I think um, industry executives responded maybe a little too hastily. To try to maintain revenue and um, and make sure that you know they would get their advertising dollars, rather than the traditional model of you know keeping foreign bureaus and you know going the mm-hmm, distance with mm-hmm. uh, news that you know they thought people should have.
1: All right, we have two minutes to go, and I want to go back to the the uh, title of Jeff's book and talk just about mass media influences, and just I guess offer the the thought that. Uh, Are mass mass media influences um, disintegrating? That is, you know, is the influence of what we used to consider mass media just dropping at a a significant level or, or are they still very much there?
2: I think the influences of the mass media are still out there, but they're coming from different places. So the influences of the major networks or major newspapers or major wire services might not be as strong as they would have been in the past. But now influences come from video game manufacturers uh, and the Internet and YouTube and uh, social networking sites. So, I mean, it's all still mass media, and uh, but the influences are still out there and people still need to think about how they are affected.
1: OK. Yeah. Last thought, Ed?
4: I very much agree. I mean, I just think that, that the sources have changed, but the actual impact of mass media on, on people's viewpoints of things certainly hasn't. mm mm-hmm. All right. Eric. I, I
1: concur. Okay. <laughs> all right. And we, are out, we are out of time. It's been a fascinating show, and I really appreciate all three of you being here. I want to, uh, again, thank our guests, Jeff McCall, Eric Busey, and Edward Hurt. Uh, also, I want to thank Mary Catherine for being, being here today, producer Ariana Prothero, and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening.
7: edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org.
1: Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville, a locally owned business serving Central and Southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bears Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering pizzas, pasta dinners, and wings with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com. 332 4495 for delivery.